0: Every time I watch that, I wonder what it would be like if someone like an announcer or a radio or newscaster were to come in my house and give the play-by-play of what happens on our given morning. What would that look like for you if somebody came in and were to give the play-by-play? Okay, now we've snoozed the alarm for the fifth time. And yes, yes, Nip, the, the smallest one still believes that the sun comes up at 530, but still is wrong about that because the sun does not come up at 530 oh we would like to get dressed this morning oh but we need breakfast first breakfast oh you want pizza for breakfast yes pizza pizza is not traditionally found in the breakfast category but maybe we could try something else and now the youngest one is melting down melting down on the couch and now we're trying to get our clothes on but oh no way we have to wear the shirt with the excavator on it or all of life will cease to exist and if that one's not clean well then we will just have to wear We're the dirty one. And on and on and on. I found this woman on Instagram a couple of weeks ago that was doing a newscast about the things that her toddler has done. And one of the things that she said was, this Justin, Parents, if your child needs to press the button, turn on the switch, be the one to pick it up. It is almost as if it is a felony for you to do that for them. If you commit this crime, your punishment will be screaming, crying, melting down for three to five hours. <laughs> So as I was thinking about a newscaster this past week, I was reminded of one of the most famous and wonderful and most incredible voices um, of all time, I would say, Paul Harvey. Do you know who Paul Harvey is? Um, he had this wonderful radio show, and during his heyday, there was over 1,200 radio stations, 300 newspapers, and 24 million, 24 million, just let that sink in, listeners, Every single week, we're tuning in to listen to Paul Harvey. Well, one of his best segments and one of my most favorite segments was the segment where he would tell a story and he would start to talk about someone, but not share their name and share a piece of them that you may not know. And then at the end, he would give away the name and go, and that is the rest of the story. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. So I have to admit to you, I never watched or listened to it on the radio when it was airing, but I've listened to to recaps of it. But before I did that, one of my old pastors used to do this thing at the end of his sermon where he would go, okay, do you want to know the rest of the story? Do you want to know the rest of the story? And I just used to think that was the most clever thing. And I knew he got it from somewhere, but not really knowing where. And then I heard Paul Harvey talk about that. So anyways, I got the rest of the story around the rest of the story. So today, that's what we are doing with this story of Deborah. We're hearing the rest of the story If you were with us last week, we were in Judges 4, and we met up with this judge named Deborah. Now, Deborah is the only female judge. That word Deborah actually means fiery woman. She is a judge. She is a prophet. She is a military leader. And last week, we talked about how the Israelites came to her during a time of oppression and need her and are looking to her for advice and for counsel. And so what she does is she raises up a commander, Barak, who we talked about last week, and they go to war. Now, what we talked about last week was them winning the battle and how there was triumph and there was victory. But the main key from last week was that when Barak, the commander, was asked to take the Israelite army into battle, his response to Deborah was, I will only go if you go. So what we hear about Deborah, the judge, this leader— is that she was not only a leader, she was someone who steps up and who stepped into the ring. She went with them to battle. Well, as Stephanie mentioned to our kiddos, that's not where the story ends. And so Judges 5 goes on to talk about Deborah some more, but in Deborah's words. In Deborah's words about what this was like. And in fact, Judges 5 is considered one of the oldest pieces of text that we have from our Old Testament. Now that might be confusing because as we read the Old Testament and as we read the New Testament, it's easy to think that this all just sort of happened chronologically and then it was all just sort of placed the books there chronologically. But no, many of our texts are written at different times and by different people in different eras and for different reasons, which can make the context really confusing But this song of Deborah is one of the most, is the oldest and one of the most ancient texts that we have. So let's listen to what is said about this song of Deborah, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then Deborah and Barak son of Ebenoam sang on that day, saying, When the locks are long in Israel, when the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds indeed poured water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel." In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, caravans ceased and travelers kept to the byways. The peasantry prospered in Israel. They grew fat under plunder because you arose, Deborah, arose as mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the triumphs of the Lord. The triumphs of his peasantry in in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, a utter song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, son of Ebenoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for, against him, for him against the mighty. The people of the Lord marched down for him against the mighty. So there's this interesting word that I found in here more than once. It's this word peasantry. And I wondered, why are we referring to the Israelites as peasants? And then I began to realize that other than saying, well, the Israelites were oppressed, we really don't even know why they went into battle in the first place. So, I started to do some digging for the rest of the story, and what I found is that Israelites, even in the promised land, in the land of Canaan where they were, they were in 12 different tribes that were scattered all around. And in between those tribes were these more um, urban areas of the Canaanites, and the Israelites lived off the land. They lived as farmers, they lived in these small villages where they took care of each other and their families took care of one another, and they provided for one another through the land, through the crops, through what they could do with their own hands and what they could build. Well, it turns out that as commerce increases, as industry increases in some of these cities, some of these bigger areas, there's a king that rules over these areas, That's King Jabin that we heard about last week that Deborah goes to to war against, to battle against. And what we find in these more urban areas is that as this commerce is increasing, they need more people to help. They need more people to help build the structures. They need more people to help trade and travel. They need more people to help with all that is going on. And it seems fitting that these people who are living out in the middle of nowhere should be doing more for their king. They should be doing more for this area that they are living in. And so the Israelites find themselves in a very similar situation that they found themselves in in Egypt. They're back in slavery. They're back working at the mercy of an authority. In this case, it's a king. Back in Egypt, it was a pharaoh. They are told, you are here, your worth, your individuality, and your group as a community, what your worth is, is to give something, be productive for the king. And so they're taken away from their villages, away from their farms and from their crops and from their families in order to make productivity for a king, Not a king that they serve, not a king that they worship, but a king that commands it of them. So when they go to Deborah, this is why they go to Deborah. Deborah the judge, she is actually one of the few judges that actually hands out judicial rulings. She's called, in chapter 5 that we just read, the mother of Israel. Now when I think of a mother, I think of someone who is very nurturing, who is very calm, But when I think of a mother, I also think of the times that me and my brother got to fight. We didn't go to dad. We went to mom. And so the Israelites are going to mom. Mom, we are in a bad situation. This isn't fair. And at this point, they have been oppressed and in slavery for 20 years. And so when Deborah hears this, the ruling that she gives, the one that she discerns, the one that she prophesies about from God is a ruling around justice. It's a ruling that the oppressed, not be oppressed simply because they are peasants or that because they live differently or live off the land, but instead be able to live the way that God intended for them to live. And to be freed from this slavery. So this is what chapter 5 goes on to say about this battle. In verse 19 it says, The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera, who was the um, commander of King Jabin's army. The torrent, Kaishan, swept them away. The onrushing torrent, the torrent of Kaishan, March on my soul with might. And then jumping down to verse 31, it says, So perish all your enemies, O Lord. But may your friends be like the sun as it rises in its might. And then it says, and the land was at rest for 40 years. There's this image in this beautiful poetic Um, verses of chapter five from Deborah. And they're actually images and poetry that we find other places in scripture. This image of the kaishan that's water. And what Deborah is saying here is that the water swept over their enemies. The wind blew them away. Even the stars came to this battle and fought on behalf of of the Israelites, the oppressed people. We see this in the image of creation. When God creates the stars, when God creates the heavens and the wind and the water, God creates all of these things and says, it is good. Another translation for that in Hebrew is that it is right, it is right. And so, what Deborah is saying as she is talking about these images of creation is not that they won the battle, that man, their armies were super strong, and wow, this is how they took down this person, and this is how they fought and won the battle. What she is saying is that God won the battle. What she is saying is that we are celebrating what God has done. And in particular, We're celebrating God's justice. There's many places in our scripture that celebrate the establishment of God's justice. All throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, what you see the Israelites doing and the prophets and the judges and those who speak on behalf of God, they are celebrating the establishment of what God is doing. God's freedom, God's deliverance, God's rescue, God's saving, and ultimately God's justice, making things right. Mary talks about it in the first chapter of Luke. When she finds out that she is pregnant and going to bear the Son of God, the Messiah, she sings a very similar poetry song about God's justice. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary knows about this justice. Mary knows about the establishment of God's justice and that what it means for God to come down in the form of Jesus and deliver God's people once again, to make things right once again. Because God is the one who is faithful. You see, from the creation story to the judges where we are now, even though it is brutal and violent, to the birth of Jesus all the way to the end of Scripture when Revelation says, I am making all things new, what we see both in Scripture and today is that God is working to make things right. God uses Deborah not to win a battle but to resist injustice and teach the people of God about God's desires for justice. It seems as though though, there is a difference between the world's justice and God's justice. So let's talk about that for a minute because I've said that word justice a couple of times and I wonder today if we maybe understand the difference when we talk about God's justice. You see, the world's justice, if we look at even our country's judicial system, a group of people who are supposed to be impartial come forward to make a ruling on something. They make a ruling, and they bring down sentencing about how many years someone should spend in prison. And ultimately, what they're looking for is who is right. What they're looking for is who has the right answers, where is the truth found? And in a perfect, in a perfect scenario, That would always work to bring justice. But what we find is not that they say that you will give perfect judicial rulings or people who are perfect. Instead, we have a hope for impartial rulings or impartial people to make those rulings. But you see, that's a little bit different than God. Because God is, in fact, pretty partial. God is pretty partial to those in Scripture. We hear Jesus talk about those. He quotes Isaiah when he says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to release others from captivity, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. You see, we hear God talking about the widow and the orphan guards partiality to those who are lowly, to raise up those who are broken, to raise up those who are ordinary, to raise up those who maybe think everything is too far gone and say what is right is the restoration of your life, is the restoration of this community, is the restoration of this world. My colleague and friend over at First Richardson, um, Pastor Allison Jean, said it this way. Her husband is um, an attorney, and so I, I thought this week, well, you know, maybe Allison may know a little bit about justice or, or what the judicial system says. And here's what she says. She said, the world's justice looks for who is right. God's justice is about making things right. The world looks for who is right, but God's justice is about making things right. You see, what Deborah does in this scripture in Judges today is she doesn't talk about a battle that is won. Instead, she talks about God and how God makes things right and how God uses us to be about the work of justice and making things right. Micah 6, 8 is one of my favorite scriptures. You've probably heard it before. If you come by my office, you'll see it on my wall. It is some, a scripture that I've had memorized for many years, and it's one that I go back to over and over again when I wonder what's right, what's just in the eyes of God. Here's what Micah 6 says about it. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So Micah's asking this question, what does God require of me? What do I offer to God to make things Right? Then verse 8 says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What does the Lord require of you? Another way to say that is, what does the Lord command of you? What does the Lord command of you and of me and of our community? Well, we have the Ten Commandments, right? We have all of these commandments in Scripture. We have Jesus who tells us that the greatest two commandments in our Scriptures that God has given us is to love God and to love our neighbor. Now, we might see these commandments or requirements as God looking to cast a stone at us or say, "Uh uh-uh, no, you didn't do that right. But you know what the commandments are actually intended for? They are intended as a way of God's people living out God's purpose. They are there to help us align us with God's purpose. To be God's people who live out God's purpose. He has told you, O oh mortal, what is good. There is that word again. Good when God created the heavens and the earth, when God created the waters of the sea, when God created you and when God created me, God said it was good. That word good means right. So what does God require of us? What does God call us to? What is our purpose? To make things right. To do justice. I don't know about you, but for me that feels really overwhelming most days. What does it look like in our lives? What does it look like for us to make things right? And how might we live that out? Doing justice. Well, friends, I've got the good news. We already do that as a community of faith. When you come into this place and you hear about a need in our community like pajamas or school supplies, you bring them until the boxes are overflowing and we are giving out hundreds of thousands of school supplies for children because what we know and believe is what is right, which is that God's creation, God's humanity means that we dignify one another And we don't believe any child is more special or important than another child. And they all deserve the same school supplies. You see, even in a very small act, we make things right. There are small ways and there are big ways to make things right. But what you will find over and over again, and what I have found, is that justice and generosity are siblings. Justice and generosity are siblings. You see, because we can't make things life if we are not willing to offer ourselves. We cannot make things right if we are not willing to give generously. Ultimately, that is the story of creation. That is the establishment of God's justice, is that God gives to us over and over and over again to make things right. To show us our value as God's creation. And we, as God's creation, have the capacity to give in a way that makes things right. That does justice, loves kindness, and walks humbly. Friends, that today is the rest of the story.